Chapter 7 Old Narnia in Danger The place where they had met the fawns was, of course, Dancing Lawn itself. And here Caspian and his friends remained till the night of the Great Council. To sleep under the stars, to drink nothing but well water, and to live chiefly on nuts and wild fruit was a strange experience for Caspian after his bed with silken sheets in a tapestry chamber at the castle, with meals laid out on gold and silver dishes in the anteroom, and attendants ready at his call, but he had never enjoyed himself more. Never had sleep been more refreshing, nor food tasted more savory, and he began already to harden, and his face wore a kinglier look. Welcome to For Narnia and For Aslan. I'm Katie, and this is Bethy, and together we're exploring Prince Caspian. A few announcements before we begin. First of all, shout out to Danny Parker, who made our beautiful logo, to Salt of the Sound, who plays our beautiful music, and shout out to you if you have left us a review or given us a rating on Apple Podcast. Hooray! <laughs> Thank you! Thank you so much for everyone who's done that so far. And if you have not yet, it's actually pretty easy. If you just look up for Narnia and for Aslan on Apple Podcasts, you can give us five stars and write a quick review about why you love us. Or four and a review about why you're mildly pleased. Okay, and chapter seven. <laughs> the old Narnians gather for council at Dancing Lawn only to be interrupted by the arrival of Dr. Cornelius with Miraz's armies close behind him. The Narnians move their camp to Aslan's Howe, but most of their battles against Miraz go badly. At last, Caspian decides to sound the magic horn of Queen Susan and to send out Pattertwig and Trumpkin to greet whatever help might arrive. Do you kind of wish Pattertwig had been the one to greet the Pevensies? Yeah, oh, <laughs> such a funny story to follow. <laughs> so funny. Uh, I feel like in some ways it would have been maybe smoother. It could have. Less skeptical, <laughs> more speedy, mm -hmm. but he goes but, the long way. That's right. And that is neither here nor there because that's not what happens in this chapter. What happens is some battles and a very, very sad giant. Yeah, there's a low moment there. So... Caspian is officially leading an army now. And like before they knew it, they were into battle against Miraz. Like there was no transition, no discussion. It just happened. So crazy. Like he couldn't even say a speech. He said, Narnians. And then everything just is destroyed. Yeah. <laughs> Not a bad first word. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's a true first word. Katie, <laughs> do you think that Caspian's been well prepared for this new leadership role? At first I was like, okay, they're not actually letting him lead, are they? Like, probably the centaurs and some of the dwarves are making plans and he's just giving the stamp of approval. But then I remember that he had that whole education happen to him where he probably learned war strategy and all different stuff like that. So actually, I feel like he's about as ready as you could be without having been a Narnian for more than a week. Yeah, I mean, I'm guessing he's maybe around 13 or 14 years old. What do you think? Possibly, yeah. I wondered if maybe he's 15 by now, but hard to say. And when I really think about all the 13, 14, and 15-year-olds that I know, <laughs> I mean, Caspian's doing okay. <laughs> right. Right. And honestly, some of his best assets are his ability to take counsel yeah. and really sort through what's good and what's bad advice. I don't know. I think he's good for morale. People fall behind him and recognize his love for them and their cause. Like he's always had that miraculously. This reading of the book has really shown me how much Aslan was preparing him for this kingship way in advance. 
even just in putting the correct longings in his heart and giving him the kind of people who he could look up to and he could get advice from. Yeah. And he has those people around. It was unfortunate that one key piece of memory was lost that giants are not super clever. And so he made this great plan involving the giant and then the giant's lack of cleverness came through and and ruined it. And it's just, it's a sad moment. It's really sad. Yeah. And also just the outcome of this giant crying the tears splashing on the mice the mice getting mad the giant decides to go away yeah like everyone is getting upset with each other later on there's like a rumor that it was a fox who knows who it was like (laughs) it's really a dark moment it is and i love the transition okay this is worth reading so on that same night it says and so everybody was out of temper But in the secret and magical chamber at the heart of the how, King Caspian, with Cornelius and the Badger and Nicobrick and Trumpkin, were at council. And it transitions. It's just such a fun scene change. Like you zoom in from this outside raining sad into this inner workings of they're deciding what do we do? We're at our low point. Mm, Yeah, that's a flawlessly written moment. Mm -hmm. Just really gave you everybody's emotions. And then this razor sharp understanding of like, oh, this is what's important. In the holy of holies, as it were, they're having this discussion. It really plays that up, the stone table's presence in the room, even though they're not sitting at it. It's too magical to sit at. I appreciate it in here. Nickabrick had some good points. Like, he's useful in this council. Caspian's saying, well, is this really our greatest need for blowing the horn of Queen Susan? What if there was an even worse need and we'd already used it? And Nickabrick says, by that argument, your majesty will never use it until it's too late. And Cornelius agrees. Like, it still fits his cynical personality, but it's also, like, clear-sighted. It's one of my favorite moments in the chapter, actually, because it makes me think of just kind of the silly example of, well, if you never use your china because you're waiting for the queen to come or you're waiting for like the best moment, it'll never happen. That china will sit in the box or in the cupboard for your whole life. Like pull it out and let the kids have a tea party. (laughs) Exactly. Hmm. Use it. It's what it's there for. So what do you think of the timeline we get in this chapter? It's so strange to me. (laughs) Here we are about halfway through the book and the Pevensies are still on the island. Yeah, they haven't gone anywhere. Caspian has suddenly become a king. Yep. And they are immediately fighting these battles. Yeah. And there's several of them. They say that they fight almost every single day. And I'm like, but how many days? Has it been like three weeks? What's going on? Right. It feels really confusing to me, this timeline, because Mm. it feels really slow with the Pevensies and really fast with Caspian. True. And to be fair, they haven't blown the horn yet. So technically the Pevensies haven't arrived yet. True. Yeah, that's helpful. (laughs) Good to remember that. But it is all told. I I don't know. It all story-wise is fit within their story in like a few hours. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, there is an interesting timeline. I mean, it was shocking to me. They're at that council. They're deciding, should we have council first or dinner? Dinner or council or a dance? (laughs) And then instead, within half an hour, they're on the march. And before sunrise, they arrive to Aslan's house. Like that's as much time as that takes for them to up and go and... And suddenly, Miraz's scouts have found them. They made many sorties. There was fighting on most days. It's not like ever like, okay, are we going to go for this? Mm-hmm. It's, it's oddly going. fast. 
And actually, speaking of that moment where everyone's trying to decide what to do, mm-hmm. I had two favorite opinions. Oh, okay. One being the bulgy bears who say, hear him, hear him. Whatever we do, don't let us have any running, especially not before supper and not too soon after it neither. <laughs> I love it. I'm like, they're channeling exactly how I feel. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Which was this, a really cute twist on, like, Caspian's like, I don't like the idea of running away. And they're like, yes, let's not run. <laughs> so adorable. Uh, My favorite moment, of course, is the Fawns, who thought it would be better to begin with a solemn dance. Mm. And I read that thinking, like, you know what? I bet a lot of people would think that's pretty funny. Like, oh, that's so fawnish of them, mm. like, to start this council of war with a dance Mm. and at first I thought that too and then I was like wait a second wait a second I have definitely started (laughs) off very important meetings with a solemn dance yeah (laughs) and honestly I feel like that's a thing oh Bethy that's a great thing to be and picture that like picture dances of war in various tribal cultures or whatever like that's a piece of the preparation I think that's yeah it's not unreasonable honestly I think it makes perfect sense it puts everyone in the right mindset. Maybe the battles would be going better by now. I think they could have, yeah. Too bad they didn't have time for any of these things, including dinner. It really would have centered them, I think. Mm-hmm. I just, the more that I learn about fawns, the more I realize I'm probably a fawn. <laughs> and that I'm very okay with that. I think a lot of things should be started with a solemn dance. Mm. <laughs> Today's sacred reading practice is Ignatian spirituality. Ignatius was all about using the imagination in prayer. So not just thinking or reasoning things out, but picturing the scene in scripture or a scene of Jesus. And we're going to apply it here to Prince Caspian and it'll still be fun in this setting. So take a deep breath, maybe close your eyes if you can and listen not just for the words themselves, but for all the surrounding imagination that goes with it. What do you hear? What's in the background? What sights or smells come into view? The gloomiest of all was giant Wimbleweather. He knew it was all his fault. He sat in silence, shedding big tears, which collected on the end of his nose, and then fell off with a huge splash on the whole bivouac of the mice who had just been beginning to get warm and drowsy. They all jumped up, shaking the water out of their ears and wringing their little blankets, and asked the giant in shrill but forcible voices whether he thought they weren't wet enough without this sort of thing. And then other people woke up and told the mice they had been enrolled as scouts and not as a concert party, and asked why they couldn't keep quiet. And Wimbleweather tiptoed away to find some place where he could be miserable in peace, and stepped on somebody's tail, And somebody, they said afterwards it was a fox, bit him. And so everyone was out of temper. Poor Wimbleweather. Poor guy. And he can't even go be sneaky about his sadness because he's too big. I know. The last thing I want when I'm crying is for someone to, like, notice. (laughs) Yeah, let alone get splashed by your tears and start yelling at you in a shrill, forcible voice. Yeah. So what I noticed as I was trying to imagine that was that it had rained that day. 
Mm-hmm. I remember that in my reading. And then it got really cold. And so everyone is under these dripping trees. Mm-hmm. But Wimbleweather would be tall enough that he's like among these wet branches. Uh, and so he's especially getting really wet and cold. You can't even shelter. Then along those same lines, just kind of feeling the dampness that the mice were feeling. Yeah. Nothing worse than bivying. I mean, not having a tent in the cold is really hard. And I'm guessing they're all sleeping in a pile is how I pictured. They had just been yeah. beginning to get warm and drowsy. Not now. And then as far as the feelings of Wimbleweather, I was definitely picturing myself as him. Mm. And in trying to sneak off and getting bitten, it's not like it hurt because he's so huge. It's more like it hurt his feelings. Yes. And he feels bad. And at the same time, no one's giving him any grace. But like what grace is left to give? Yeah. We've all run out. (laughs) Yeah. They had put all their hopes on this battle and there's like nothing even came from it. And now it's cold. You need those low moments in these kind of stories in order for the high moments to feel really great. (laughs) True. But you never want to live those low moments. No. I think the mountaintop is just as beautiful, even if you didn't, you know, run out of oxygen along the way. It is interesting that then when we zoom into um, the how where they're having secret council, at first I was a little bit like, wait, how come you're not out in the cold? How come? Totally. But really what they're talking about is this low morale, low success. You really feel the difficulty of being part of the troops rather than one of the leaders. Yeah. I wonder why the mice aren't sleeping in the how, because it said most people were, except the giant and some others who couldn't fit. Yeah, you would think that a fox would be in there too. Right. Would have been really better for everyone. Even for the giant, actually. I think Wimbleweather yeah. would have preferred if everyone had left him alone. Strange. Mm. I What I hope is that those inside the how didn't say like, hey, we need this space alone for council. Oh, yeah. That would have been pretty bad. <laughs> That'd be rough. But I feel like there's lots of rooms. I don't know. I hope yeah. not. I mean, it's true they needed it. This council, it doesn't have the emotional space for everybody's colds and tears. True. And this is the council that changes everything. Yeah. We're actually going to think about this council in our scripture reading because I am fascinated by this description of Aslan's how. We've got this labyrinth underneath a hill on top of another hill and deep within these chambers, the walls have all of these paintings, lion after lion after lion is depicted on them. Mm. So ancient feeling. And then deep within, we have this stone. And of course... When I think of where we have stones in scripture and holy places and battles, I think of altars. And there are so many examples that I found in the Old Testament. So here's just one. Exodus 17, 15 through 16. Moses built an altar and called it, The Lord is my banner. He said, Because hands were lifted up against the throne of the Lord, the Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. Now the idea of God being at war with a group of people for generations is really hard for me. A lot of times when I read things like that in the Old Testament, I immediately think to myself like, well, this was written by the winners. (laughs) Sure. 
there's no reason that they would have written like, and then we fought the Amalekites and God wasn't that into it because he loves everybody. (laughs) They had every reason to say like, yeah, God is blessing this. And in the same way, Caspian and his council have every reason to say like, yes, we should definitely be fighting Miraz. And so, yeah, I just kind of struggle with the idea of war and with the idea of God blessing it and Aslan leading it. But I saw so much parallel between this stone and these stones that Moses raised up. It is going to be interesting to see how Aslan participates in this war. So far, it's through these battles that aren't going that well. We're going to get quite a shift later in the book in how Aslan fights back the armies of Miraz that we can't give away now, which doesn't really do much to help us figure out how to read the Old Testament. It is interesting that they end up making their camp at this site that represents Aslan in many ways. It does add a layer of implying that their cause is right. Right. It definitely gives them a bit of authority, and it is a beautifully described area. And really cool after reading The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe to picture how much it's changed with the trees growing up and the hill built on top of the hill. And yet, I wonder, would Aslan design it this way, that this special place where he sacrificed himself for his beloved is used for war? In some ways, I think it's really cool because, like, yes, it's a continuation of sacrifice for his beloved. Here's old Narnia trying to save themselves. And at the same time, they're harming both others and themselves. Like, things aren't going well on either side. It is. The how itself is chiefly a place of protection and defense, which is how the war is framed, is they're being hunted down. Definitely. And so to hide within the how, maybe it's fitting... It's certainly incomplete. Mm -hmm. Like at this point in the story, things have not reached what they need to reach, what Aslan designs for them. It is beautiful to think, though, that this same place that Aslan set aside for his sacrifice is a place where people can find safety. Right. Even within a war. And, you know, Lewis's own view on war, he's got an essay entitled Why I'm Not a Pacifist that... I'd have to look at again to to remember why he's not. Um, <laughs> but for example, in the Screwtape Letters, the main character, human, is drafted into war. The demon's all excited because there's all suffering and horror going on. And the older demon tells him, watch out. This is actually a chance when a lot of people come face to face with God. Hmm. And that is what ends up happening. He dies in the war and dies blessed and received into God's presence. And so I think Lewis sees a lot of space where in the midst of a horrible, ugly thing that is a piece of life, God does just as much good and different types than in any other setting. Yeah. Which isn't necessarily a judgment on war itself, but on how God works it during it. Right. It's helpful to remember that just because war is a horror, it doesn't mean that God is not going to show up in the horror and say, like, here I am, find me. Yeah. There is no space that God isn't present. And to draw people towards courage or love for one another or all sorts of things that come in extreme situations. Mm -hmm. And we definitely see that here. They have this very difficult night, but they're such a courageous group. Yes, it's sweet. And even though Trumpkin doesn't believe that anything's going to come from the horn being blown, he says, well, send me. I will definitely go if my king asks me to go. Yeah. I know the difference between giving advice and taking orders. I've given my advice. Now it's time for orders. Wow. And and the reason he says it is because Nickabrick says, no way am I going. And Trumpkin's like, are you kidding me? That's how you talk to your king. It's really admirable. Yeah.
have a workshop today. Excellent. A life area to workshop with help from the chapter. My fiance and I recently went through and tried to make our budget together because we'll be merging finances. And so it seemed like a thing to do. Good conversations seem to go well, but there keep being things that are like, oh, we could get this. We could get this. We could get that. And I'm just coming back to the question again of what is good to spend money on? And it feels a little complicated doing that together with another person too. Definitely. Your priorities will always be different. (laughs) Right. So like we went walking around the mall and smelled this awesome perfume and he really likes good smells and I liked it and it's super expensive. And okay, so now that's on the back burner. It's like, do we save up for something like that? And then he's got his sports cricket stuff. And okay, that's a thing. Are we saving for that? We like eating out when we can, but that's a cost. And recently I've been feeling like, oh man, it'd be fun to just like give people gifts more often, like spontaneously. I had a chance to send Bethy a, a book just for fun. And it was, it was so, so rewarding fun and to fun. get that and all of a sudden. <laughs> Totally out of the blue. Yay. And I love doing that. And I feel like more of that should happen. Like, I'm not good at giving gifts on gift giving occasions necessarily, but just like when something comes up, just go for it. But all of that has to work. Okay. Does that mean not one of these other things? And we're also trying to save for some bigger ticket items that now we're feeling like real grownups we need to be thinking about. So all of that, just trying to figure out like what are principles to go by or what types of things are good to use money for. That's a really big one. Been a recurring question in both of our lives, so. What is your instinctual answer? Well, the thing is, all of them feel so joyful and fun that it's like, well, yeah, just do it. Probably the most fun feeling one is the giving gifts thing. More than like just general giving to an organization or something even. It feels special. So on the emotions level, I'd like to be like, like have a jar or something that's for that. Uh, I don't know. I mean, part of me is like, it's good to learn to wait on some of these things or like the more stuff you get, you keep finding more things. It's not like they're going to run out. Right. Yeah. I don't want it to be like a lot of things turn into moral questions for me when they aren't necessarily as much as I make them. Like every dollar I'm spending on this or that should be going to some kind of good cause. I don't think that's, at least right now, it doesn't feel quite right. But, you know, it's a real consideration, too. Like, I remember our professors, Roger and Dottie, who gave away 90% of their income, and they were super happy living on what they had, and it made a huge impact in the world. We don't want to ignore that. But then there's other people who just, the generosity of their life is, like, a blessing to everybody around them. So, and I also want to be valuing, like, things that matter to Minoj, like, bless that, and not be Mm -hmm. stingy about it towards him. I don't know if the chapter has any input. It's not really a money chapter, but maybe there's some links. There are two that I'm thinking of. One is the moment in the beginning of the chapter that I read. Caspian has had all of these things, these beautiful tapestried rooms and meals made for him served on gold and silver platters. And the best time he had ever experienced was living in the woods, sleeping under the stars, eating nuts and berries. Yeah, that's not a diminishment at all or Mm -hmm. like having to give it up. It's like extra life. Celebration within simplicity. So I think of that, but I also think of the moment with Nicobrick where he says, if you don't use it now, you'll never use it. And so within that, there has to be a balance struck because you can't just use all your money now. That's not wise. 
And you also can't live in the woods. Mm. A majority of people don't want to do that. And I don't think you do. <laughs> no, it would take a lot of extra effort. <laughs> Too cold. <laughs> but within that, there must be a balance. Those are the moments that I'm seeing in the chapter. But as far as what's coming to my own mind, I really only have my own experience with money, which mm. for Joshua and I has everything to do with priorities. We save kind of an extreme amount. And yeah. that means that we get to prioritize traveling. For example, Joshua is on a week-long trip right now skiing with his cousin hmm. because we got to prioritize that. Okay. But yeah. it means that when I would really prefer to get Thai food like three days a week, <laughs> right. we get it like twice a month. So there is a balance that we have to strike and it's hard. But it's like for a reason. Yes. Anytime that there is some kind of sacrifice, I know that it's for a reason. Hmm. And when we do give it away, it's to a specific person who does a specific thing with their life that we want to support. And yeah. we do it regularly. But then also something will come up and we'll be like, oh, well, they need an extra $500. We have that. Let's do it. And we don't have to think twice. Because that is the one way that we have committed that we give our money. I mean, there's that verse like God loves a cheerful giver and having something you're really excited to give to and also just things you're excited to spend on. Yeah, it makes it feel cheerful instead of like this duty to sacrifice what you like. Right. You know, sometimes, yes, but it's it's for a reason that you feel called to or care about or whatever. That would be good to have a conversation with Manoj where it's, yeah, which are our priorities? What are we going to, for now anyway, be saying no to more often? And what are we? Like, what's the yes we're trying to... Right, because the yes has to be more exciting than the sadness of the no's. <laughs> yeah, or it just won't happen or feel happy. Right. Hmm. So much of life is about priorities and about striking a balance, about saying no to one thing in order to say yes to another. And in order to say yes to the possibility of the Pevensies coming, Caspian yes. had to give up two of his fighters. I was just thinking that. I'm looking at this recap to send out Powder Twig and Trumpkin to greet whatever help might arrive. They have no idea if it's even coming. Right. But they're setting their stake in it already because it's worth it. And Trumpkin goes, even though he doesn't think it's going to happen. Yeah, he's picturing, I'm going to show up there, sit around, maybe eventually come back and see how badly the army's doing. Even worse, he says, well, I could die there or I could die here. True. But he's going to choose the priority of supporting Caspian, his new king. Mm -hmm. That's a better yes to him. Than his own sense of what makes sense. Mm -hmm. And that's an important thing, too, thinking about money decisions with another person. It's like their priorities matter a lot and you can go out on a limb to wait and see what happens with what their vision is. You have to be willing to trust them. I'm grateful that trust comes for Trumpkin, even kind of an odd trust that maybe doesn't feel fully realized. Mm -hmm. It's enough to get him walking. And I'm so excited to get back to Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy. Oh, man. It feels like we've gone this whole book and they're still in their spot. I know. Bethy, you were mentioning before we started recording that we're how far through all the Narnia books? We are halfway through. Oh, my goodness. Because we've done three. We're halfway through four. We have three more to go. And there's three after this. Wow. It's crazy. Crazy. We're halfway there. <laughs> <laughs> Spiritual reading and scripture and prayer. prayer. <laughs> A few minutes later, Patter Twig arrived and had his task explained to him. As he was, like many squirrels, full of courage and dash and energy and excitement and mischief, 
not to say conceit. He no sooner heard it than he was eager to be off. It was arranged that he should run for Lantern Waste while Trumpkin made the shorter journey to the river mouth. After a hasty meal, they both set off with the fervent thanks and good wishes of the king, the badger, and Cornelius. Well, we have had a time. We'll see you next week with Chapter 8 of Prince Caspian. First of all, shout out to Danny Parker, who made our amazing, what is it called? Logo? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Is that the word you were thinking? (laughs) Yep. (laughs) (laughs) 